Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Sachs. But Ethan is joining me from the West Coast this week, not the East Coast. And possibly the most on-brand thing ever happened to the podcast <laughs> in our pre-releases. You did one yeah. pre-release. I did two. You opened one Yorian. I opened a Yorian in both of my sealed pools. And one out of three Yorians was companioned. We'll give our, our listeners a wild guess as to, <laughs> as to who took the 60-card plunge. I got to say, you know what the worst part of companioning Yorian and paper was? Shuffling 60 cards. Yes. I would Shuffling be a 60 mess. Cards. I can barely shuffle 40. <laughs> it was horrible. But also, I didn't really feel like... So, no one commented. Like, I figured once, so like you pass your deck across the table, your opponent can cut it or shuffle it. I figured someone might, like, give me a side eye of, like... Deck's looking mighty thick <laughs> over there, sir. <laughs> but no one did. So then I had to be like, well, you might notice that I have passed you a monstrosity. And so the reason is, is because I've companioned Yorian. And also the other stressful thing is make sure you don't shuffle that Yorian back in and and forget to companion oh, it, no. you know? It didn't happen. didn't happen to me. But uh, but yeah, I uh, went to a pre-release sort of lined up nicely that I got to go to. I feel like a sort of famous site, the, the Mox Boarding House out in Seattle. Um, went to the one in Bellevue. They have a couple locations, um, which was super fun, other than finding parking, which is a bit of a nightmare there. It's a kind of a crazy store. It's beautiful. And there's just like tons of space and there's a restaurant attached to it. Anyway, super fun night. I also had a Yorian moment where my opponent passed me a suspiciously thick looking deck. And I was like, oh, so you companioned Yorian? And they were like, no, what's that? And I was like, oh, great. Yeah. Good times. I shouldn't have opened my mouth. Yeah, my my round one opponent was like at the end of it was like, so that's pretty good, huh? So I won my first round against him. He was like, that's pretty good, huh? It's kind of crazy. You just get that card. I was like, well, let me tell you, when they first printed them, you just got to cast them. You didn't have to pay the three. Yeah. You didn't have to pay the three. He was like, excuse me. Um, yeah, so they uh, they were a bit more broken back then. And we'll be chatting maybe slightly, maybe for a brief moment about companions. But we've got a ton of. To discuss, Ben, you have played, I think, just about as much of this format as anyone could before it's actually live on Tuesday. I did my duty. All of my free time was dedicated to Magic the Gathering. I came home from school on Thursday, played early access till like past bedtime, and then, you know, did two pre-releases Friday evening and Saturday afternoon. So yeah, I feel prepped and ready to go. I will be bringing less <laughs> to the podcast <laughs> this week. I will. I will be bringing, bringing your host I will be, skills. Yeah, <laughs> be bringing. I'll be bringing transitions. I will be reminding Ben of what cards actually do to read to the end of the cards. <laughs> but other than that, I didn't get to play that much. I did the paper pre-release, but I was unfortunately traveling to Seattle on Thursday, so basically got to do like a draft and three games in the early access event before having to pack up everything and go to the airport. So unfortunately, I didn't get to do a ton of prep. I will be I was I was thinking to myself the other day, I was like, Oh, man, I'm on the West Coast now for when the set goes live on Tuesday. That means I can like start drafting at 8am instead of waiting till 11am like usual. So I'll be getting <laughs> packed in this week, rest assured. Um, and I'll maybe be adding to our YouTube channel, which we should chat about in just a little bit. But we have a ton of announcements to get to before we get into this jam packed episode, where Ben is going to take the lead on uh, letting us know what's up when we draft with what our mama gave us but before that few housekeeping things first things first is the patreon page patreon.com slash lords of limited so where folks can go to give back to the show if they so choose we have gotten i think a huge outpouring of support via the patreon the past few weeks and that's awesome i think that is largely due with the sort of 
set on set on set action. We had one, we had Shadows of Innistrad Remastered, which was part of the arena open. So people wanted to get in to discuss that. And now we've got March of the Machine, which is just a super duper awesome jam-packed set um, that's out in just a couple days for real, for real. Um, and folks are going to get in there on the Discord. That's what you get access to when you give back to the Patreon. You get access to the Discord. It is a 24-7 limited tech support chat room, just the most expansive chat room of all time, I would have to say. Um, there are just channels upon channels where you can discuss anything and everything magic related. Um, it's an awesome place. I think really inclusive, really helpful for people who are super engaged with the game, who are newer to the game. I think we've got a lot of different learning levels there and a lot of people helping each other out, which is just a beautiful thing to see. So really uh, encourage folks, if you're looking for a community of like-minded, limited individuals, check out our Patreon page so you can get access to the Discord. You can also get access to a bunch of other perks over at the Patreon page if that is what you're interested in, access to the show a day in advance, access to our show notes, and even access to monthly coaching sessions with me or Ben. And we, of course, want to shout out our new patrons the first week that they join. So this week, I'm going to ask Ben to help me in welcoming Joe, Yazan, Dylan, Chris, Stefan, Joshua, Matt, Drew, Lapsy, William, Nico, MJ, Julian, Danny, Caleb, Cody, Michael, Andre, and last but certainly not least, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate your support. Definitely not least. Saving the best for last. <laughs> of course. Always. Got to do it. I feel like that's just always how it times out. There's always a Ben towards the end there in the mix when we uh, when we come to listing out the patrons at the end of the week. So yes, huge shout out to all the folks who are joining the Patreon. We really appreciate the support. Absolutely. Cannot say thank you enough. We also have a huge announcement this week, which is that we are partnering with Cool Stuff, Inc., on the podcast, which is an incredible website for content, for magic products, for actually products of all different games. Um, but uh, we are really excited to be joining a sort of like trial period with them to see if it's a good fit, um, a good fit for them, a good fit for us, good fit for our listeners. If you aren't familiar with Cool Stuff, they've got a lot of great content over there. Uh, we'll be joining the ranks of other great creators like Jim Davis, the Magic Mike's podcast hosted by Evan Irwin, Ruben Bresler, and previous Lords of Limited guest host, MTG Nerd Girl, uh, Alias V. Um, tons of great folks over there on their website, but they also just have great uh, opportunity to buy product, um, to check out other games, board games, rare board games, all that good stuff. So excited to be partnering with Cool Stuff, excited for them to uh, be giving us a chance on their site. And excited for our listeners to be directed over there. Yeah, absolutely. And we are back to the checkout code, which is much preferred. So if you go to coolstuffinc.com, you can get 5% off anything in their store by using code LOL when you check out. And we would greatly appreciate you taking the time to go to coolstuffinc.com if you're going to make purchases of Magic the Gathering cards, board games, whatever. We want them to know that their partnership with us is working out. So please, if you're going to spend some money online on Magic the Gathering, do it at coolstuffinc.com where they have cool stuff in stock. Boom. All right, Ben. Give me the format overview. Battles, pretty overrated, I assume. <laughs> I mean, in some senses. So, yes and no. I just want to take a second to clarify our position on battles. You know, I was super hot on battles going into the format, and I do think they are a defining feature of the format, but they're not the best cards in the format. And I, I was mm. talking about them like they were, I think, because I had only looked at the commons and uncommons. Rares, totally overrated. But turns out <laughs> there are a lot of rares and a lot of very good rares and two rares per pack. So the, the rares do play a huge part in these games. And the format is just pretty powerful overall. So I do think battles are very good, but they're not the best thing to do in the format, if that makes sense. 
That totally makes sense. I mean, I think we had alluded to this. A lot of our comparisons, a lot of other creators' comparisons from battles to planeswalkers led us to this will be like War of the Spark, which brings us back to one of your great innovations of the modern magic era, which is BPP, board presence people. Yes, you have to get on board in this format for sure. And I don't think it's necessarily in an aggressive way. The battles are so interesting in that they really do change how games play out even more than planeswalkers were in war of the spark because you have control over when you play the battles you didn't know when your opponent was going to play a planeswalker and when your opponent played a planeswalker they were planning on protecting it right nobody was just going to dangle a planeswalker with no board presence but you can stick your opponent with a battle when they're least expecting it so it's just a totally similar but different thing to planeswalkers but i do think they really i was thinking the battles were going to speed the format up because they were going to let you snowball if you got on board early but i actually think they extend the length of the game kind of artificially in that you know you're almost always i think attacking battles until you're able to go for the jugular on the opponent which is interesting because i heard a lot of different things in the discord as far as when to attack battles and at the pre-release when to attack battles and my personal heuristic is attack the battle until i'm planning to kill the opponent i think like all things in magic it's great to have a heuristic and then also the actual answer is it depends but yeah your maybe default your baseline should be to attack the battle i was sort of debriefing with my brother on our way home from the pre-release about you know what his experience was and he was like well i had he had this demir rare 5-4 flyer that brainstorms when it enters the battlefield i don't know the name of it but he was like when you have an evasive five power attacker, it's no great feat to defeat a battle, right? Like you just attack it once and it flips. And so when you're thinking about, a, a, you know, you're defeating Invasion of Algrotha, which is the deal three, gain three battle, five defense, and then flips into a three, three flyer that can grow when your opponent's creatures die, that you know, you, you're taking a slight hit in terms of your ability to clock your opponent for five each turn. So you attack your opponent for five in the air, okay, you're taking out uh, 25% of their life total. You attack that battle, you're not hitting their life total, but you're adding an evasive 3-3 to your board to hit them for potentially eight next turn or mow down another battle and then whatever. So when you're able to drop a battle and flip it in the same turn, I think that's also like a huge part of the equation rather than I drop a battle and then a few turns later or over a few attacks, I'm able to mess with it. Like I think the more you can know that you control what you're going to do with that battle, the better they are. Yes, for sure. A hundred percent. But just as far as the heuristic of attacking battles or not, it's like using your life total as a resource, right? You're letting, mm-hmm. when you d- ignore the battle and you attack your opponent's life total, you're letting them use their life total as a resource to not let you affect the board, right? Like, I would happily pay for life for my opponents to not get another creature. You know what I mean? Well, it, and does it not also matter, like, what the front side of the battles were? Because, again, I'll, I'll, I'll use Invasion of Algrotha because it's on my mind, but and pro- perhaps a little overcosted as five mana deal three, gain three, but affects the board on the front side versus, I don't know, that white invasion is a Dominaria, the gain four draw card, five defense. That's a lot less exciting of a, I'll just dangle that out there and get to that a few turns later. I disagree. Agree, I think. Okay, great. I mean, I, you have way more experience. So this is what I want to know is like, what makes that feel okay in your mind to just go, I'll drop that and then I'll get to it later. Because I think it fundamentally changes how the game plays out a little bit. Even if you're not killing it right away, 
your opponent has to respect you being able to kill it. That's what I mean by mm. like battles just make the games go longer, right? So let's say you drop the invasion of Dominaria on turn three and aren't doing much with it. Your opponent still can't be super aggressive if you do have enough board presence to crack back and kill the battle because then you did cast a three mana Sarah Angel, you know, which is still powerful whenever you flip it on turn five or turn six or turn seven. So your opponent has to have enough control of the board to be attacking you and defending the invasion of Dominaria, or you're going to get a Sarah Angel, which you're also probably happy with. I mean, better if you have control of the board, but they do make it harder for your opponent to be aggressive, even if you're not able to flip them. Okay. That makes sense. But I also think there's a scenario where, you know, if you just load up on battles, you know, I was talking about battles like invasions where, um, you know, it was like lol, you look at the pack, there's a battle in it, you take the battle. That's not the case, right? Because if you have four or five battles on your opponent's side of the battlefield and you're not able to flip any of them, you're not doing very well. I, I would even say two to three battles. Like you're not doing very well if you have that many battles over there and you're not flipping them. One does the effect I was talking about where your opponent has to respect you being able to flip it. And I think you're just missing out on value the more battles you have loaded up on your opponent's side of the battlefield that aren't flipping. And that that definitely happened to me during the early access because I wanted to play with battles so much and try to figure them out. So it's not that more battles are better, but the first battle you play has a pretty big impact on how you play and how your opponent plays. So to use a phrase that I sort of threw around during the crash course of like diminishing returns, it's not that there's diminishing returns and they get worse, but that the first battle is the most impactful battle, you would say? I would say for sure. And they're definitely going to get better if you can keep flipping them. Like if you're ahead, battles are incredible. If you're at parity or behind, one battle, I think, has an effect on the game and any subsequent ones are a little bit worse. Yeah, that makes sense. So that doesn't that make the mechanic less exciting? Because like if something is at its best when you're ahead, many things are good when you're ahead. Yeah, except they're so good, right? Like the, the, the floor and the ceiling is ridiculous because the floor is like pretty close to a magic card on the front side of a lot of them. And then the ceiling is incredible when you flip them. Right, you're getting a lot of value. And in some senses, you're getting like you know, a two for one, three for one in terms of board presence affecting what's happening on the other side of the battlefield, etc. No, I, I definitely see that. Right. Most of them are a very efficient two for one if you flip them. So I would say you're generally when you're playing with battles, you're trying to control the board. And there's kind of two things. If you do control the board and you flip it within a turn or two of playing it, you're going to do very well. And you're pretty significantly advantaged at that point. But if you can't control the board and you don't flip your battle, you're kind of far behind. And so I, I do think there is some risk reward in that sense with battles, and they are definitely better the tighter and the more focused your deck is. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I do think you only really need to flip one battle to be ahead. I, I am less jazzed about the idea of having five or six battles in my deck at this point in the format than I mm. was prior to playing with them. I, I think two to three in a tight deck is kind of the go-to. And then obviously there are just some stupid, powerful battles at rare or mythic rare that you're always playing no matter what, because they're just amazing cards. But if we're talking about the uncommon battles that you're going to see on a consistent basis, like those, I'm probably aiming for three of the ones that are in my colors and, and not going super far out of my way to splash them or, or things like that. So would you say, and again, I'm just trying to grasp at like comparisons from previous sets, it seems a little bit like it might be how we felt about 
the modal double-faced card lands from Zendikar, where like the first week, at least for myself, I was like, oh my God, these are incredible. Just take everyone you can get. You play like 20 lands. It's just free. You only have to play actually 12 basics. And then I was like, no, that that's not a that right at all. You want to like find your lane and to then pick up, like you want to make sure you definitely have some modal double-faced lands in your deck. You're sad if you don't, but more important to like find what you're supposed to be doing in the draft first, then pick up the MDFCs. Yeah, I would say they're somewhere in between that spectrum. I mean, they are very good. Like most of them are in the B minus to B range. I think like they pull you into their colors, but they're not good enough that you're like, for example, splashing the uncommon ones in that that touch one of your two colors or something, unless you're already a multicolored soup deck for a bunch of bomb rares. Do you do want them to fit within your lane? I I found myself, and this was in a couple of the practice drafts that I posted to YouTube, and then I think I also faced this card early in my actual draft in the early access event. Um, The blue-white battle, uh, the, the uncommon that you know, bounces a creature when it comes into play, it has four defense and then flips into a star star flying knight that has power and toughness equal to the number of creatures you control. That's the best one, I think, of all the uncommons. Whoa, I was gonna say I felt so like, is that a card I want to be first picking? Because what if I don't end up in blue white? I think that has to do partially with like, blue white is just a very good deck, right? Blue white is a very good deck. But that battle also is everything you want to do with battles, right? So to flip it, you probably went two drop, three drop, four drop. When you cast it, it makes it so that you can attack it. And then when you attack it, it's like a four mana, three, three flyer bounce a thing at minimum that then grows into a larger problem as you snowball. Yeah. Like that's one yeah. of the poster childs for battle that when you flip it, the turn you cast it or after you cast it, you're just significantly far ahead. Yeah, that's that's very true. Right. If you're able to just attack that down the turn you cast it, that's such a huge huge swing. That's like just the most buff mana war we've ever seen. Right. Well, and I think the other thing that battles do that's not immediately apparent is because you're supposed to attack them, I think, in the early turns to try to flip them, a lot of times by like turn five, six, seven, eight, you know, people's life totals are a little lower, right? They're at 14 or 15 or people have gotten in some chip damage. And I I've found frequently that by turn five, six, seven, eight, like both players are still at 20 or one's at 18, one's at 20. And somebody's ahead at that point, like somebody has probably flipped a battle, but the games artificially, I think, go a little longer as a result. And so, which brings us to our next thing is that there are a ton of bombs in the format that cost six, seven, eight mana, and you definitely have the time to cast them. And then they completely can swing the game. Like there's, there's just a ton of power in the format between battles and a lot of the bomb rares that are running around. And the battles kind of artificially inflate everyone's life totals. And yes, somebody might be ahead after, you know, attacking the battles. Maybe they flipped a battle or two. But the rares can come down after that if you're behind and still flip the script, even if your opponent has flipped some battles on you. All right, let me pump the brakes on you for one sec, Ben. Um, we'll tease that idea a little bit and we'll come back and unpack more of what's going on with the bombs after this ad break. Our next partner is Athletic Greens. The phrase waking up on the wrong side of the bed exists for a reason. Starting your day off right or wrong can have massive implications for how the rest of your day unfolds. Whether you're up early for a long school day into an evening of music lessons, or up multiple times in the middle of the night before watching your son all day, or gearing up after a full week for a midnight pre-release. Wait, you went to a midnight pre-release? Of course not. (laughs) If I did, I would certainly (laughs) need something to help me through it. 
Exactly. Whether you're looking for increased energy, immune system support, or better gut health, AG1 from Athletic Greens has you covered. Every scoop is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. It doesn't take a pro tour level magic player to recognize that that's a lot of value. If you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash LOL. That's athleticgreens.com slash LOL. Check it out. All right, Ben, housekeeping out of the way. Let's get back to bombs. Yeah, so if you've not played this format before, or maybe you just went to your pre-release and you're sitting down to your first draft, We've said this about a couple recent sets where they feel kind of cube-esque. This is that on steroids. I I would venture to say that this is the set that is the closest to cube, maybe outside of master sets, or maybe even including some of the master sets that we've ever had in limited. The power level is juiced. And what do you mean by cube? Other, like, Do you just mean purely power level? Or do you also mean in terms of how you're feeling the drafts play out, how you're feeling the, the decks look? What do you mean by cube? I think power level first and foremost in that you're going to be passing a lot of powerful cards. So you just can't avoid passing B's and B pluses and A minuses. And I think you're going to be in this format because the packs are going to have, you know, two A's and a B plus in them, you know, depending on the rares and the uncommons. And that has a lot of rippling effects that we'll talk about in a second with the drafts. But so definitely the power level of the packs is very high. I think the complexity of the drafting and the gameplay is very high. There's just a lot of decisions and a lot of cards that do things. I I think it's going to be a little overwhelming for some folks. And when you get to the gameplay, you know, cube games are kind of defined by you know, all the best Hallmark cards and magic. So when you're dealing with that power level of cards, the games can be very swingy. You know, your opponent plays a five drop or a six drops that totally turns the game around. And those cards are here. And not only are they here, they're fairly frequent, but not in a bad sense. I don't think normally I would be the person to complain about that, but (laughs) but everyone is getting to do it. So to me, it just seems fun because everybody's getting to play these powerful swingy cards. And I think unless you're just drafting with your head in the sand, you should end up with some powerful cards. When I think about cube, also, I think about high synergy, but that hasn't really seemed to bear out, at least in some of the decks that I've I've seen so far. What, what is your take on the synergistic aspect of the format as it relates to this description of cube? I think it's there, certainly. And I think, again, we'll talk about this in drafting, but I think the games are kind of going to come down to streamline decks versus bomb decks. And I think the synergy is where you're going to get the power. Like I think the aggressive decks or the decks that are trying to end the game are going to be the synergistic decks. And there's going to be some games that want to go a little later that are trying to splash all of the bombs and try to win the games with individual cards. But I, I do think synergy's there and I think it's super real. You know, you mentioned blue white. I've seen green white counters decks pop off. I mean, your your experience primarily has been sealed. And I, I agree, mm. the sealed games were definitely less synergistic, but I, I got housed by some very tight draft decks. And I, I was not doing that in early access. I was trying to push the envelope with battles and splashing and, and all that nonsense just to kind of see what I thought was possible. But after doing that, I, I do think the best decks are streamlined two color synergistic decks. So I think it's there for sure. 
Great. Okay. The cube comparison. And I've not only seen this from you in our show notes and listening to you now, but I've seen this take from multiple people on Twitter so far as well. So the cube comparison seems to uh, be apt in multiple categories. Well, and you know, back to power level and rears and things, a lot of the rears as well are double pipped or like, you know, mm. AABB yeah. or CCDD or whatever we talked about in those guild sets, like where they have two pips of two different colors. So those are going to be floating around. And if you do read the right lane, you might get some absurdly powerful cards late as well. Right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I lost to the 12-12 Dino in my third round of uh, of my sealed event twice. That card is just I was like, oh, I, I can't deal with this. And if I can't deal with it immediately, I'm going to die to it immediately. There's several large dinosaurs. That, so I assume you're talking about the Galta, right? Galta. Yeah, yeah. There's also a green one that convokes and gets plus two plus two for each creature that convokes yep. it, which is just redonkulous as well and also has ward for some stupid reason yeah yeah lots of uh, lots of keyword soup floating around on these cards for sure but so speaking of those bombs those kinds of creatures the galtas the atalis which is also obnoxious if you've uh-huh. not played against that yet those cards come down on seven mana and a lot of formats it's like well can you get to turn seven can you get to seven mana can you get to eight mana you do yes. in this format because of battles which kind of is the opposite of what I was expecting in some ways, because like I said, those life totals are artificially inflated because people are attacking the battles and then they're ahead. But you have like just that extra turn or two to really get to your seven mana play. And those seven mana plays are busted enough that they catch you back up in a big way if your opponent has started to snowball with battles. And I think that part of it is cool that, you know, there's something good enough to stop the snowbally nature of battles. So I, I want to float a thought by you again. This is from my, my debrief with my brother after the pre-release, which is that so we're saying it's a board presence people format, but we're also saying that the life totals are artificially inflated, which makes the games go longer, which means you can get to these later cards. So does board presence mean more about being able to defend battles that you are given rather than to pressure battles in terms of your early plays? Because my impression and my brother's impression was stuff like the 2-2 lifelinker in white or Icker Drinker, the black 1-1 lifelink, let you incubate two by exiling it from your graveyard, that those largely like, yeah, those are like good early plays or whatever, but they largely didn't bear out in mattering, at least in sealed. Perhaps draft does a little faster, but that like the blue uncommon one mana 1-3 that flips into a 3-3, the Phyrexian uncommon flipper, like that was great because it like blocked early and then flipped into something relevant later. That like that's the kind of board presence I might be leaning into. What do you think about that as a take? I think I completely agree that the Icker Drinker or the 2-2 Lifelink Pegasus have underperformed, mostly because Lifelink mattered because your life totals mattered. Your life totals have been completely irrelevant <laughs> in games like more than ever before like i just have not cared about my life total it's so easy to pay two life for a phyrexian mana because what matters is controlling the board and and you know the the push and pull from battle so lifelink essentially just is the worst it's ever been i think because everybody starts at like 25 or 30 life anyway yes and and i think somebody ends up ahead after all that attacking of battles, but there's just so much more time in the game to do things or to find an answer or to cast a bomb to catch you back up. But so I will say 
board presence, I think, is going to matter in two different ways. So okay. when, we, when we look at drafts, I think there's going to be two like common paths through a draft or two common types of decks you end up in with also because of how cool the format is and the power level of the cards, lots of room to like expand on this and cook and like do your own thing. I just am really excited to podcast about the format. I think there's going to be a ton of cool fodder in that way. But I think you're ultimately going to either be trying to feel out during the draft whether you're going to end up in a focused two color deck that has on color battles and maybe a couple less a B plus level type bombs. And if you end up in that deck, battles are great and you're going to be wanting to have board presence to attack the battles. You had mentioned the Icker drinker and the alabaster host sanctifier, which is the, the two, two life linker and the one, one that dies and then can incubate two. Those aren't the way that you want to pressure battles. The way you want to pressure battles are with the cards that are good at attacking battles, like maybe the one white three one knight that's going to get first strike when you play another knight. Like there are good aggressive cards that are designed to attack battles, and those are what you want to use to pressure. And then the other type of deck is, you know, a less focused two color plus deck that's either going to be, you know, splashing two different colors or maybe you're full on three colors and you're trying to ramp to and cast these more powerful bombs and the battles are going to be fine to good there, but you're going to be more worried about stopping your opponents from flipping the battles than you are flipping your own battles, if that makes sense. So I think battles my take currently and again, haven't done enough drafts to really know my take currently is that you're going to be wanting to cast battles when you're an aggressive deck. Like the aggressive decks want to attack battles and then snowball that to try to win the game. And the the control decks or the decks with bombs want to have board presence to try to stop their opponents from flipping battles and then win the late game with better cards. That makes a ton of sense to me and checks out with what I feel like I was poking around at and I think is slightly different or completely different from what we were maybe speculating on, which is like, well, if life totals are artificially but not actually inflated, maybe the aggressive decks are where you don't want battles. But it makes sense to me when you're saying the aggressive streamlined two color decks are where you want battles because that's when you can get the like consistent way to pressure them and flip them and get that big impact from flipping your first one. Whereas if you're playing the bombs, the CCDD cards or whatever, like the big seven mana plays, you're much more interested in the defensive speed of it all because you anticipate, okay, I need to stop these battles from flipping so that I make the game go long enough to get to this, you know, game winning card that I get to cast. Right. So and for example, Alabaster Host Sanctifier, the 2-2 lifelink, I just think is not a card in the format because I don't think I don't think lifelink matters. Like I think that's essentially just a two mana 2-2. Two, two. And then the Icker Drinker, I do think is good, but it's a synergy piece. It's nowhere close to the best black common that we we had it pegged at as in the crash course. I, I think it's just a synergy piece and a good synergy piece in a black based sacrifice deck or or a deck that really wants to incubate. But it's not like you're curving out, you're pressuring battles with your Icker drinker. It's just not a relevant enough card to do that. Because I do feel like by the time like the dust settles and you do end up doing the exile it from your yard and then flip the incubate token, you're like, and now I have a 2-2, two, two. why does this matter? Well, it doesn't, but there are ways to make it a 3-3 three, three or a 4-4. Four, four. I mean, sure. you, you can pop off with incubator tokens, but again, I think it's it's a synergy piece rather than, you know, one of the key commons in the format. Yeah, yeah it's two sacrifice rectangles for your red-black deck, etc. Yes. So, you know, with specific to drafting, I think, you know, if you've got these two styles of drafting, where you're either going to try to end up in a focused two-color deck with some on-color battles in your two-color deck to try to flip, you know, be a tight, efficient deck, or kind of a broader, you know, 
splish splashy bombs type deck, it can be overwhelming during the draft to figure out what you're supposed to do because there are so many powerful cards and so many randomly powerful cards going way too late, right? Like in pick six of a normal draft, if you see something like Kogla and Yadaro, which is like the red, red, green, green rare, that's just awesome. Like pick six, you're supposed to jump ship for that and draft red, green. And maybe you're supposed to do that in this format, but at what cost, right? Because if the power level is raised, like this whole idea from the Incredibles, where like, if you've seen that movie, the, mm-hmm. the concept is the supervillain is trying to make everyone super. And if everything is a superhero, then no one is super. Like that's definitely happening in this format a little bit where like the bar of how powerful a card needs to be before you're willing to stretch and make your deck uncomfortable as a result is much higher, I think. Well, it makes sense because this is effectively like Magic Avengers Endgame, right? <laughs> yes, for sure, <laughs> right? Isn't that what the set is? So, yeah, it makes sense. I you, you shared that uh, that gif of like if everyone's super, no one is. Uh, way early, like uh, last week or whatever, when I was looking through the spoiler, I was like, this set is juiced, and you're like, yeah, and that, that makes total sense to me. It's so much harder to read signals. You know, we talk about by about pick four, that's about as early as you can read signals. It could be as early as pick seven where you actually have a signal that's that's possible to read. So I think you can really get yourself in a bind by trying to draft, quote unquote, the hard way in that sense. Yes. And I think it means several things for, you know, the, the common wisdom of you're supposed to try to stay open. You're supposed to read signals, draft the hard way. It's hard to figure out what the signals are. And I think if you go overboard on signals or you're waffling too much, you can end up in a really soupy deck that just yes. gets super punished by tight battles decks. But if you're drafting a tight, you know, two color synergistic deck with some battles, you might only have one A, but you're going to have passed like the power level of cards you potentially are going to have passed to end up in that deck is just astronomical compared to normal drafts. So you can feel like, oh, man, I'm in the wrong lane. I'm doing the wrong thing. I think you just need to be mentally ready. Like, this is what I wanted wanted to know, like sitting down at my first (laughs) draft in early access. Like if someone had told me that, I think I could have drafted better, but I was just trying to push boundaries. But I think you just need to know whether you're trying to splash, trying to ramp, trying to defend some battles and win with bombs or be a tight two color synergistic deck. And and regardless, there's going to be some really good cards flying around the table. You keep talking about splashing like it sounds like it's a, a very real thing. And we did see that a lot of fixing existed in the format last week. Do you have a sense of or am I jumping the gun with this question? Do you have a sense of what the good ways to fix are or what the ways you're like, oh, I'm happy to fix this way, not happy to fix this way? Yeah, I do have a sense of that. So I think to really be splashing or ramping well you want to be base green and i think one of the other things that's difficult about the format is it's easy to convince yourself that you are going to be able to splash or play a three color deck and really you end up with a mana base that's just not quite good enough at least in my experience in the early access event because you have the etb tap gain lands as colorless fixing and there's treasure tokens but treasure tokens make it a lot harder to splash the double colored cards, the double pipped. Mm. And most of the best cards are double pipped. And then there's Skittering Surveyor, which is good, but has the issue with a couple of other cards that were good in the past of just not being quite a good enough body to attack yeah. or defend battles, right? Because you have to be able to control the board, at least at parity in the early turns to either 
flip the battle if you're trying to be aggressive, or you're probably playing Skittering Surveyor in a defensive deck, but it's embarrassing as far as trying to defend battles. So it's not great fixing in that sense. And the basic land cyclers, too, like it's tough with the colorless fixing. So I, I do really think you need to be green. And the best way is Invasion of Zendikar. That card is incredible. Um, that's mm-hmm. the battle that when it ETBs, you search up two tap lands and it flips into a 4-4 that can tap for mana of any color. But Blighted Burgeoning has been pretty impressive in the green decks as far as that's the, the three mana one that lets a, a land tap for an additional mana of any color. And then you incubate two. The play pattern with that that I found the best to be is to play it on turn four and then mm-hmm. you can use your your land that it's on to flip the incubate token. So it's kind of like a, right. a two two that's going to ramp you the turn later to maybe your juiced six and seven drops down the road. But I, mm-hmm. I think you really want to be base green if you're really trying to be some sort of a a good splashing deck and or bordering a three color deck. I don't think the colorless fixing does it more than just for a splash or two. And a lot of times, I think you'd rather your deck be tighter unless you're doing something extraordinarily powerful right because there there's mm-hmm. like this ramp up in terms of advantages in the games with the battles where like you're getting ahead you're getting ahead you're getting ahead but if your opponent draws one of those a or a plus level cards like they can erase all of those advantages that you accrued yeah no that, that makes a lot of sense especially the thing you said about skittering surveyor being an understated body and like we just can't like we went from like i said skittering surveyor being the quote-unquote best common to pick in dominaria to i just don't think it's gonna be like i think you'll play it but i don't think you're like going out of your way to to want it um defor who's a another streamer on twitch an excellent limited magic player had had some takes from the early access event and one of them was some underperformers which skittering surveyor made the cut for the uh the nizumi informant which is the two mana one one when it etbs your opponent discards a card just these sort of like cards that have been good in recent sets but that aren't good in this set because you just don't want to pay for underrated creatures yes i completely agree with that thought because they're they're good at nothing early in the game right <laughs> they, i mean seriously because yeah. they, yeah, yeah, yeah. they don't pressure battles and they don't defend battles which is what the early game is about right you either want to be yeah. aggressive and pressuring the battles you gave your opponent or you want to have ways to defend your opponent, you know, trying to knock down the battles that they gave you. Because if you're if you're a control deck, you're way less interested in casting and trying to flip battles. Right. I think that's that's such a good and Ben is always good at this, so I, I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm consistently impressed that you're so good at like succinctly coming up with, okay, this is what the set is about. And that makes a ton of sense to me. This idea of the more aggressive you are, the that that's the better you are at flipping battles. And so your you know, early plays want to skew towards that and then support the battles that you pick. Whereas if you're this late game like bomb deck then you're less interested in battles because your board presence is more tied up early in the game in defending the battles you're given. Yes. And I, I do think if you have a choice between those, at least my plan going into the first week of drafts here is to try to be tight and aggressive because I think a lot of people are going to draft piles that are susceptible, uh-huh. like not knowing how much they need to try to protect the battles or against the early aggression of things. And I will say, too, if you're one of these decks that's trying to, you know, pressure some battles, temple your opponents out, you're tight, you're synergistic, that sort of thing. You once you turn the corner, like you need to end the game <laughs> as quickly as mm. you can to try to give your opponents fewer windows to play some of those busted cards that just kind of catch them back up. So I have to ask you. 
Does your curve need to start earlier than the four mana slot? <laughs> it does. So, <laughs> I mean, that that was kind of a funny meme that I hadn't realized was happening while I was evaluating cards. But there are so many good four drops. You know, you, we've talked about this in cube episodes before, but the bar for a four mana card in cube needs to be really good. And I would say the same thing here. There's just insane rares there's insane uncommons you know a lot of the the premium battles cost four mana and there are a lot of what look like powerful commons in the four drop slot as well but you just can't have that many four drops so i think the the common four drops certainly get a knock and honestly common four five and six drops seven drops get a knock because you just want to be casting haymakers like once it's turn five turn six turn seven and you hit those land drops I think I agree. I had this in my Orion deck, the green four mana common that's an 01 that makes an incubate five token. I think we were right in pegging that as Chimney Rabble in a sense. I'd be interested to see like how Chimney Rabble actually stacked up in this format because I do think the haste pressuring a battle would be good. But but largely, I think that it would just get edged out because you would have higher power stuff in that mana value slot and not have room for it. Yes, this format is just way higher powered than Phyrexia All Will Be One. And that's the Converter yeah. Beast is the name of that. And it did make the list of underperformers for me because the four mana slot is just it's just too contested. So I do think it was funny that that happened, but I think it's it's very true. And I was way wrong about a lot of the four drops I liked. So I think you want to stack the bottom of your curve with, you know, commons, the good commons that are aggressive. And then there's some uncommons that are just absolutely premium, like some of the two mana Phyrexian flippers. Yeah, like the good true drops are irreplaceable. And I think you're taking those over anything but the best bombs. Yeah, well, and that's so good. You know, we talked about how I think Phyrexia all be one taught me at least a lesson in terms of how to draft and build aggressive decks uh, that I'll be able to take to future formats. I think this set will really, really hammer home the idea of like, if you're choosing between two cards, and it's pretty close, pick the cheaper card. Well, and I think the other thing this format is going to do, and again, I'm curious to explore all this because I think there's so many different avenues that are available to you, but that you have to have not like, you know, it's always like drafted deck, not cards or synergy, that sort of stuff. I think the games and what you're designing decks to do is accomplish objectives. Like the the battles Mm. just make magic very objective based. If you're going to cast battles, you need to have a consistent plan to come together for how you're going to flip that battle. And if you're not on the battle life, you need to have plans for how you're going to defend the battles and slow the game down and then cast your bombs like you're you're going to be trying to do things like in the game, like very specific things more than have a bunch of synergy to overwhelm and then kill your opponent, right? Like it's it's yeah. more than that. Well, speaking of doing specific things, can we talk about some specific cards that have impressed, overperformed and underperformed? Uh, Before we do that, I want to talk about some decks that have impressed, baby. Oh, okay. So Blue White Knights as a tribal archetype has been very impressive uh, from opponents. And I haven't played against it a ton and I have not played with it yet, but it spanked me the couple of times that I played it. Just going two drop, three drop, battle, like flip it. Just very good at doing that thing. Green White Counters I've played with quite a bit has also been super impressive Black white Phyrexians I've been very impressed with as well. And there's kind of like a green multicolored bombs deck as well. I, I think white is currently my front runner for for best color. But again, it's largely theoretical at this point. And I do think a lot of what's best as far as archetypes or colors, I'm sure some will emerge from 17 lands. 
But I mm-hmm. think a lot of it is going to be figuring out the best home or the best curve or the best strategy for what the most powerful cards you see are, right? Do those lend you towards trying to make the game go longer, defend some battles, or do they lend you towards, you know, being tight and trying to cast some battles and flip them? You you mentioned 17 lands there, and I think it'll also be interesting. The more cube-like this format is, you know, cube is where 17 lands card data, in my mind, is the least. It is the furthest from being helpful because the way people draft cube is so unique from person to person that pick orders are just going to vary wildly. And so it just doesn't matter as long as you have a plan. And so I think that could also skew here if it's like, well, this card is just doing really well. It's like, yeah, but I don't want to draft the deck where that card ends up in and that's okay. I wonder how much sort of like ownership preferences you can enact um, in this format. And if it is such a high powered set where you can't really read signals, etc., then I think that may bear out. Well, I, I don't want to say that. I mean, I do think you can read signals and I think sure, you're going to sure, be, sure. no. be rewarded if you figure them out. But I, I agree there. I do anticipate there will be a lot of room to brew in the format. Yeah, yeah. there we go. That, that's a better thing. I, I didn't mean can't read signals, but that like reading signals is harder because power level is higher. You know, you can't really see the the texture of the commons, what's missing from those in terms of color until potentially pick six, pick seven, whatever. Yes. All right, so as far as individual cards overperforming, the first thing that stands out to me is the Frexian Mana flip cards. Paying two life, we mentioned it earlier, is trivially easy to do in this format, and I do think winning the board is way more important than your life total. To the extent that those are just monocolored cards, right? You should not be looking at the Phyrexian color in those activations at all, right? That's what I think, yes. Just just the good ones are just monocolored cards, and there are kind of two tiers, good ones and mediocre ones, but the good ones are premium, and the games go long enough that you're going to be able to sink mana into those at some point. And specifically, I've been pressed with one that I thought was kind of junky or bad, which is Harried Artisan. It's the two and a red for a two, three with haste, and it's got three and a Phyrexian white to flip it as a sorcery, and it flips into a three, four flying haste. The fact that it's either a six mana, three, four flyer haste, like the turn you play it, or, you know, gives you some board presence early and then flips into something that can attack or pressure some battles later is cool. And the other thing that's nice about these and battles, there's just a lot of cards that have an impact on the game without you having to do anything with them, right? Once Harry Artisan's on the battlefield, your opponent has to account for you flipping it on a future turn, but they don't know when you're going to do it. Or once you stick a battle on their side of the table, they have to account for you attacking that battle on a future turn, but they don't know when you're going to try to go all in on attacking that battle, you know? So there's just a lot of cards that represent things that could happen in a game that you need to account for in the format. Sounds like there's a ton of stuff to do with mana as well in the format, as we sort of thought, but it does seem like, and in my experience and my limited gameplay, no shortage of things to do with your mana. I played... A whopping 28 lands in my Yorian deck in my sealed pre-release. <laughs> wow. And I was never for lack of things to do with that mana. Yeah, that makes sense. I do think, and the games go long enough that you're going to have mana sinks as well, but they're not always relevant mana sinks. Like, sure. Normally, right. normally late in the game, like being able to transform creatures into better creatures is enough to turn the tide for you. I think the power level is high enough that that is not how you're going to win the game in this format. That makes sense. But the fact that you can get on board early and make a better creature late is pretty nice. Mm-hmm. All right, Bladed Battle Fan. We talked about this and had this picked out. It's been pretty impressive. This is the one in a black equipment with flash. When ETBs, you attach a target creature control. That creature gains indestructible until end of turn. And the equipped creature gets plus one plus oh. It's got an equipped cost of one. 
Yeah, I mean, trick that then grows your creatures. I think that's pretty darn good. Yeah, not a top black common or anything, but I'd been impressed with it. So the next thing that's really impressed is cards that pressure battles well. And there's a, there's a subset of cards that are specifically designed to attack battles, but also just good aggressive cards. But for example, something like War Historian, which is two and a green for the three through with reach, has indestructible as long as it's attacked a battle this turn. Again, not a top green common, but if you are planning to give your opponent battles and attack them, this is a card you're interested in putting in your deck. Now, if you just have like two to three battles, probably a little less good. But anything, whether it's evasive or, you know, has first strike or whatever, cards that want to attack when you're giving your opponent battles are impressive. Shout out to Onaki Javelinier on this list as well. The four and a red five four with reach that taps to deal two damage to target player or battle. So does this make the cut for you in terms of like, I know you said you want to play haymakers on turn five, but is this then something you're thinking about putting more as top end for your aggressive decks that have battles on the curve? Yeah, it's probably not quite good enough. It's probably closer to filler, but it's good filler, like was a mm. very relevant card when I cast it. I mean, I don't think you're going out of your way to try to play three Onaki Javelineers, but it can definitely do the job in the five drop slot, like just the the being able to flip battles or being able to get your opponent down to zero. It's something that demands an answer from your opponent, I think, when it hits the battle. Mm -hmm. OK, next up is Shatter the Source. This looked pretty clunky to me, and I think I was too low on all of the Convoke cards, especially the ones that are instants. I think one of the things that I hadn't really thought about was we were making the comparison from, you know, Guilds of Ravnica or whatever that was with the Celestia set. And a lot of those were creatures with Convoke. When cards are instants with Convoke, the fact that you can just not attack and then have it up at instant speed. And if your opponent maybe attacks into you, like you still get a block and cast your instant. Or if they don't, really all you're giving up is an attack cycle to cast your Convoke instance. And so the fact that you can play defense while casting your Convoke cards is, is big game. So Shadow of the Source is five and a red instant with Convoke. And you choose one, it deals six damage to target creature, planeswalker, or battle, or destroys target artifact. This costs closer to four mana or three mana. And once you look at it that way, like three or four mana don't attack this turn. It's a much better card. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the next thing, which is blow my mind, kind of cards that make incubate three or more or cards that pump your incubate two tokens into three threes are ridiculous. So Norn's Inquisitor, we had pegged as a good uncommon, very good uncommon. It's insanely good. It's one in white for a one one when ETBs incubate two. Whenever a permanent you control transforms into a Phyrexian, put a plus one plus one counter on it. So it's two mana for a one one and a token, and then kind of almost has a Sarulf's Packmate thing, like these cards that incubate two or incubate three. Like you get the one one, and then the next turn you get a three three, and then future thing. Like it's just hard. They need to deal with that three three, but then they also need to kill the Norns Inquisitor because they're probably making other incubate tokens. Card is just incredibly good. We don't talk about rares very much on this uh, podcast, but I had two copies of Glistening Dawn in my sealed pool. This is uh, the rare. It's 2GG. You incubate X twice, where X is the number of lands you control. I was looking at that card. My brother was like, that card's nuts, right? I was like, is, I don't know. It's like four mana do nothing. <laughs> that card's nuts. Oh, no. That card is broken. Like, sure, you do nothing on turn four, but then on turn five, you're attacking with two four fours. And that is the floor when you flip them. But like, I also cast it on turn seven 
and flip one, and they're two seven sevens. Like that card is ridiculous. Making large incubator tokens is excellent. Right. So another one is completed Huntmaster, two and a black for a two three. You can pay one tap, sack another creature or artifact, incubate three. That one looked a little clunky to me. Very good. Any anything that makes an incubate three or more is, I think, pretty premium and. Much like battles or, you know, convoking at instant speed or the flip cards, incubate tokens sitting on the battlefield that you haven't spent the two mana to flip yet. Like threat of activation on blocks is super real to where your opponent can't quite attack into them, but then you can still play instance with that mana at the at your uh-huh. opponent's end step, even though they couldn't attack into you. So you don't actually have to invest the mana for them to kind of theoretically play defense. If you have the instance, it's very powerful. That checks out. Talk to me about Phyrexian Sensor. This is two and a white for a three, three uncommon. Each player can't cast more than one non-Phyrexian spell each turn and non-Phyrexian creatures enter the battlefield tapped. This play is pretty well or pretty well against battles because you actually cast the battles when you defeat them, right? Yeah, there's a lot going on. I thought this card was pretty junky, but it lets players not be aggressive in the sense that they can't flip a battle and also add to the board that turn if it's a non-Phyrexian spell. So it, it really, depending on what type of deck you're playing against, can make their lives super awkward. And, you know, like if they don't realize, like I think this card's going to get to a lot of feel bad moments where people, you know, maybe they attack a battle and we're planning to play another spell and they can't play the other spell that they were planning to play or vice versa. You know, they play a spell pre-combat hoping to, you know, remove a creature and then go all in on a battle and they're not going to be able to cast the battle. There's a lot more going on with Phyrexian Sensor than I thought at first glance. Some other ones that have impressed, Wicked Slumber, three and a blue instant with Convoke, tap up to two target creatures, put a stun counter on either of them, then put a stun counter on either of them. This again is just a house in the blue-white tempo aggro decks. So much board control. Do you think that blue-red Convoke is any more of a deck this time around? Like, I know last week you were kind of like, eh, skeptical, overcosted, but if this card is good, or you just think this is a good blue card? I just think it's a good blue card, but I do think blue-red Convoke is better also i think one of the things that i hadn't realized was the the two drop that makes the two one ones they're blue and red so they help you pay the colored mana symbols as well on your instant Mm. convokes the convoke deck i do think is actually pretty good and pretty real i I mean again i haven't played with it yet but i can see the pieces coming together and i think that convoke deck is going to be one of the ones that's good at defending battles really well at instant speed like the the decks that can hold up instance like the blue bounce interaction or things like that because mm-hmm. your opponents are going to be throwing resources at you to try to flip battles and when you can interact at instant speed to try to disrupt their attacks like it's pretty backbreaking okay okay keep a lookout on that speaking of battles we've got invasion of eldraine next on this list three and a black for a four defense battle when invasion of eldraine enters the battlefield target opponent discards two cards and it transforms into a two two fairy with flying at the beginning of each opponent's upkeep if that player has two or fewer cards in hand prickle fairies deals two damage to them so this is a a real resource war. i mean a potential three for one if you can flip it even if you don't flip it i just think mind rot's pretty good in the format or mind rot that mind rot that changes your opponent's like attacks and blocks even if you can't flip it it's just been backbreaking every time i've cast it and every time it's been cast against me it's very good uh, Kami Whispered Hopes also, we had this pegged as a good card. This is Nutter Butters if you're doing anything with plus one plus one counters. Kind of fragile, but it demands an answer. So Tuna Green 1-1, one, one. if one or more plus one plus one counters will be placed on a permanent you control, you get that many plus an additional one. for. So it's like an 
Anthem for your whole team for plus one plus one counters. And then it taps to add X where X is its power. So the first time you put a plus one plus one counter on it, you can tap it for three. It's just ridiculous as far as snowballing in the plus one plus one counters decks. Very powerful there. Um, and lastly, just wanted to shout out again, Invasion of Xerex. That's the blue white uncommon that bounces a creature. And then when you kill it or you defeat the battle, it flips into that flyer with power and toughness equal to creatures you control. I think that's one of the best uncommon battles. Okay, those are all good cards to keep an eye out on. Yeah, so just a couple underperformers to run through. We've talked about a lot of this already. Um, just wanted to shout out Etched Host Doombringer. We had this pegged as one of our top commons, potentially. It's definitely not that. Uh, it's four and a black for a three, five ETBs. Choose one. Target opponent loses two life. You gain two life. Again, life totals just aren't relevant. And so then this is essentially killing battles or adding defense counters to battles. So the other option is to choose a battle. If an opponent protects it, you remove three defense counters. Otherwise, you put three defense counters on it. It's just not relevant enough at five mana to be worth spending five mana on in the format. You just need better cards at that expensive level. And then the other thing we talked about with uh, Skittering Surveyor, Nozumi Informant similarly has that problem. This is one in a black for a 1-1 ETBs. Each opponent discards a card. The body it leaves behind is just not relevant enough to either pressure battles or defend battles. So this is kind of like filler-esque in a, in a red-black sacrifice deck. It's just too small ball you know, to really be relevant early in the game. Yeah. And we also chatted about converter beast, the O one that makes a incubate five token as well. Just the four mana slot two contested. We had a, a comment in our discord that I wanted to address real quick is that we uh, left out. I think this was a, a bad on us. So I'll ding both of us. We left out chatting about the multiverse legends uncommons in my head. I was thinking about these as like, it's a bonus slot and they're rares mostly or whatever, but if we're chatting about battles so much, there's a dedicated slot there. They're, you know, a spread of uncommons, rares and mythics as well. We probably should have chatted about the multiverse legends uncommons. Unfortunately, they're just not very good, right? Yeah, they're really not good. I, I had looked about like, well, do we want to talk about this? And then I they graded them all as like C's, C pluses. They just the uncommons don't really define the format. The rares and mythic rares. Holy cow. Do they do they define the format? But the uncommons well, are me, largely filler. Well, and that brings me to my next point, which is the only thing I can contribute in the coming weeks of this format is companions, baby. Um, they're back. They're back with a vengeance. Uh, I will probably be releasing, I'm, I'm trying to think about how can I like, you know, dip my toe into the content world this week. And I'm, I'm going to be doing some more YouTube stuff because I feel like that's easier for me to piecemeal record during the day while I'm watching Jonah and then, you know, edit at night while he's asleep, whatever. So I think I might release a video later this week on companions as my way to sort of contribute to the week one conversation. So if you're not following us there over on the Lord's Limited YouTube channel, please go ahead and do that. You can also check out my first attempt at a sort of condensed sports center highlight YouTube video of a draft this week that I did for Tinkerer's Cube. We're calling that the Draft Digest series. Let me know your thoughts on that. But I think companions are going to be a big part of the format, whether they're in the companion slot or not. And I think folks in general like massively misunderstand the upside of companioning and the cost, quote unquote, big air quotes, the cost of three mana to put them into your hand. So I'll, I'll try and break that down in a video later this week. Looking forward to it. All right, that's going to take us to re-ranking the top commons. And I'm not super confident about these yet. I feel more confident than I did about our, our Crash Course top common rankings, but I assume we will have another re-ranking or an update after getting to draft the format all week. So if we look at white in the number one slot, now have Angelic Intervention. It's one in a white for the instant. Target creature or planeswalker you control gains protection from colorless or from the color of your choice until end of turn. If it's a creature, 
put a plus one plus one counter on it. In the number two slot, Alabaster Host Intercessor. It's five and a white for the three, four. When it ETBs, you exile something until Alabaster Host leaves the battlefield, and it's got plane cycling for two. And then in the number three slot, a couple of removal spells here, potentially Realm Breaker's Grasp. That's the one in a white pacifism variant that can enchant artifacts or creatures, and they can't activate abilities. And then another one that's really impressed me in white defensive decks, which I don't know how many white decks are going to be defensive, mm. but if you are, this is pretty premium. Cut short two and a white for an instant with Convoke, destroy target Planeswalker that was activated this turn, or tapped creature. Potentially being able to cast this for one mana or free to defend battles when your opponents aren't expecting it is really premium. Yeah, we'll definitely want to keep an eye on those. I think white's got a lot of strong commons, and so I think that's probably one of the colors that has the most potential to change or shake up that order. Well, and I just think it's never going to get into an order. I think it's always going to be contextual. Like, if you're drafting an aggressive deck, you're going to be picking the one in a white 3-1 knight that gets first strike when you play another knight. So you're just going to have to feel out with white. Like, it's got a lot of power but a lot of power that can go in a lot of different types of decks. Looking at blue, we're, we're very similar to where we were last week. We have Preening Champion number one. That's a three mana, two, two flying knight that brings along a one, one token. We've got Temporal Cleansing in the number two slot. That's the three in a blue sorcery uh, with Convoke. To have target creatures owner put it on uh, the bottom of their library or on the top, second from the top. And then in the number three slot, we've got a new contender here in Afara's Dispersal. This is a three mana bounce spell uh, to and then surveil two, but if it's targeting an attacking creature, it only costs one mana. Talk to me about this card. Yeah, I just think this card is pretty backbreaking if you are you know, trying to attack a battle and you've invested some resources into thinking you're going to win uh, you know, this combat to flip this battle and your opponent for one mana, you know, potentially gets a card's worth of value and stops you from flipping their battle and surveils too. Like that's just a back breaking tempo blowout as far as giving them more time to make the game go longer. And you can also use it on offense to help you flip a battle. Like you're certainly willing to invest a card in some tempo to flip a battle and surveil two. Like this card would, I think, be playable without surveil two tacked onto it. And with surveil two tacked onto it, I think this card is just pretty premium as far as a way for blue decks to interact in the early game. You know what else this card is great for? You can put this in your Karuga companion deck. Ooh, secret one drop, baby. Secret one drop. Yeah, I mean, Spoiler alert, sure. do not companion, do not companion Karuga. I feel pretty strongly that that is a bad idea. All right, that takes us on to black deadly derision in the number one slot where it probably should have been all along. Uh, two black black instant destroy a creature or planeswalker, make a treasure token in the number two slot. Final flourish one of black for an instant target creature gets minus two minus two until end of turn. And if it was kicked, gets minus six minus six in Ted and you can kick it by sacking an artifact or creature. And then in the number three slot still have Icker Drinker. Uh, black for a 1-1 one, one lifelink. You can pay black and exile it from your graveyard to incubate two. Activate that only as a sorcerer. I do think that is going to be a nice synergy piece in some decks, but it is not certainly driving you to draft black at all. What are your thoughts about Vanquish the Week? The two and a black uh, destroy target creature power three or less? I like it less than the other two black removal spells, mostly because you rarely get a mana advantage off of it, but I found it's certainly fine. Okay, yeah. Uh, moving on to red, we've still got Volcanic Spite in the number one spot. That card is excellent. One in a red. Uh, instant deal three damage to target creature, planeswalker, or battle. And then you can choose to put a card from your hand on the bottom of your library. If you do, you draw a card. Then we've got Ral's Reinforcements. This is the forbidden friendship of the format. It's one in a red for 
a sorcery. It makes two 1-1 uh, blue and red elemental creature tokens. Great for convoking. Great for fixing mana for your convoke spells. And then sort of up in the air a little bit in the number three slot. Maybe it's that convoke uh, red burn spell that deals six damage to something. Maybe it's Hanger Scrounger. This is the two in a red, two one with backup one. When it becomes tapped, you can discard a card if you do draw a card. Is this Scrapwork Mud? I don't know. I haven't played with or against it enough yet, but I do still like it in theory. <laughs> Your favorite. <Yeah>. We, <laughs> we actually haven't. No, I mean, well, I'm I'm the the I'm the president of in theory for this episode. Um, we haven't talked much about backup this episode. Is it not like as big of a player? Did you just, were you sort of like, I expected it to do the thing it does and it does that thing. And so didn't need to talk about it this week. Well, what's your take? Yeah, I think that is more the case for me. I thought it was going to do what it does and it does that thing. I mean, it's an aggressive mechanic. It helps you flip battles. Like, for example, I was super high on the the, the three, three that can tap a creature and then it's a two, two. Mm, oh, bo- the- Bola slinger. Bola slinger. Yeah, thank you. That does what I thought. You just can't pick it that highly because it costs four mana. I mean, that's like a, a filler curve topper in an aggressive deck. But the a lot of the four drops do help you with backup, help you flip battles. And the granting of abilities is super relevant to enable attacks from out of nowhere that your opponents can't expect. I just do think there are also great ways to defend against backup. Like I cannot say enough good things about if you're trying to play defense, Afara's dispersal or cut short in white, mm. like those those cheap, efficient ways to interact when your opponent is attacking you. It's going to be very interesting to see how it shakes out as far as what we feel like the, you know, the better strategy is in the format, whether you want to be trying to flip battles or play defense against your opponent flipping battles. Well, and also the things in the draft, and I'm sure we'll figure this out, the things in the draft that pull you towards those two different ends of the spectrum. Yes, for sure. All right, onwards to green. In the number one slot, Overgrown Pest. Two and a green for a 2-2. ETBs look at the top five. You can reveal a land or a double-faced card from among them and put that in your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. The number two slot, Cosmic Hunger. That's the, the punch card. One and a green for an instant. Target creature you control deals damage equal to its power to another target creature, Planeswalker, or Battle. And then in the number three slot, a couple cards. I want to float this out to you. Wary Thespian, one and a green for three-one. When ETBs or dies, you surveil one. How close to Scrapwork Mud is this? <laughs> the Scrapwork Mud of it all has to stop. <laughs> Are you sure? Um, the card is pretty good. Uh, it seems good. I haven't seen it in play yet, but but I, I see the comparison for sure. And I guess it can also do both, right? As a high-powered two-drop, it defends battles well, and it like digs towards your good cards. But also as a high-powered two-drop, it attacks battles well in theory. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Again, and I have not played it much, but I kind of like that card after feeling out the feel of how the games play, you know? Um, support and tracker on the radar as well, and certainly gets better if you're trying to ramp towards powerful cards or fix with the like the enchantment that makes your land a tap for an additional mm. man of any color. It's kind of broken with that. So important tracker is one and a green for a one one. You untap target land or you choose target battle. You're almost never using the second mode until late in the game. But the curve of portent tracker into the three mana enchantment that enchants a land. And then you can untap that land and immediately flip the incubator token that comes along oh. with it. It's pretty sweet. And then cast a seven drop the next turn. Yeah. <laughs> it's wow. kind, kind of insane. Okay. Okay. I, I hear you. Sweet. So Portent Tracker, definitely premium in those decks that are using that enchant land. Um, and I think Chomping Kavu also great, but it just costs four mana. So three and a green for a three, three backup one. 
Creature can't be blocked by creatures with power two or less. Yeah, that all checks out. All right, can I pick your brain on like a pack one, pick one type deal here just to see if I'm like way off base? Yeah, absolutely. So pack one, pick one, I think is pretty straightforward here. But pack one, pick two is where things start to get interesting. So no commons or uncommons in consideration here. The rare is Invasion of Tolvada. This is a battle, and when it enters the battlefield, you return target non-battle permanent card from your graveyard to the battlefield, and it's got five defense. And then if you flip it, creature tokens you control get plus one, plus oh, and have lifelink. At the beginning of your end step, create a one-one white and black spirit creature token with flying. So super powerful rare there. My brother had this in his sealed pool on uh, Friday in our pre-release, and he we had decided he should be playing blue-black. He had a couple lands that fixed for green. He had a skittering surveyor looking at his green. Didn't really have anything worth splashing. Had this, and then he had Alabaster Host Intercessor, and I was like, this is just a wombo combo. Like, you just play this card, cycle it, find your planes, then cast this battle, get your plane cycler out of the graveyard. He was like, oh yeah, that's gross. And then ended up doing that multiple times. That's sweet. So moving on to pack one, pick two, see the following cards as options. There's again, some commons. There's like Chomping Kavu. That's the the four, four green with backup. There's the plane cycler, alabaster host intercessor. But quickly we move to the uncommons. Invasion of Xerex, that's the blue-white one that bounces a creature and then flips into a creature with power and toughness equal to your creatures and has flying. There's Collective Nightmare, two and a black for an instant with Convoke. Target creature gets minus three, minus three until end of turn. And then your rare is Pelucranos Reborn. Green, green, green for a four, five with reach. Transforms for six and a white Phyrexian mana into like kind of a worm coil engine variant. Six, six with reach lifelink. And whenever it or another non-token Hydra you control dies, you make a three, three green and white with reach and a three, three green and white with lifelink. I mean, how how possible is green, green, green? Super possible. Super possible. Super possible. Yes. And, and because not only is it possible as just like think of it as a six drop in your heavy green two color deck but also super possible because of this multicolor green, you know, busted cards deck. Yes, I think. But some real tension if you take Plukernos Reborn here. I think there's a real argument to be made for Collective Nightmare with something as good as Invasion of Tolvada. So it is going to be hard to do green, green, green and white, black, I think. And white, black battle specifically. right? Right, because the battles are less good the more you're messing around with mana and trying to do, you know, just busted nonsense. So I think this type of pick you're going to face a lot in the format where like in a normal format, you obviously take Pelucranos Reborn because who cares? You know, you can put one of these cards in a deck and one of these cards in another deck. But once you start down that road in this format of drafting two different decks, it can be really hard to get off of that and not just end up in a multicolored soup deck, which I don't think is necessarily where you want to do. So I think there's a world where you take Collective Nightmare, that's the the tune of black minus three minus three at instant speed with Convoke, and just try to stay on rails and draft a really good white black deck. So you're going to constantly be faced with picks like this, and I think you just need to be ready for, sometimes I'm going to need to pass Blue Kronos Reborn because I'm going to get the power. I I think your deck is going to end up powerful no matter what, almost. (laughs) In the format. Do you think Invasion of Xerox, what you said earlier in the episode, was the best uncommon battle? Do you think that's part of the conversation as well? I mean, is there not a world where you could be like, yeah, maybe I can be Esper Battles? That seems less good to me because I think 
the more you want to be battling, the more focused you want to be. Like uh-huh. you want to have like three to four battles that are in your colors that you can always cast. Like uh-huh. so much of the the thing with battles is being able to flip them when you want to. And to do that, you have to be a focused deck. And then and and no love for my wombo combo. Take Alabaster Host Intercessor. I think that's, that's too small ball with cards that are this 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 good in the pack. I mean, there's yeah, certain, certainly love for that, but too small ball. But I think if you take Pelucranos Reborn, you just have to. There's so many things that picks imply, and you have to be careful to not get lost in the sauce down the road. Do you think you then like? So let's say you take Pelucranos here, and then like, do you have a sense of how long? you feel okay straddling those two different decks? Because like oftentimes we talk about, you know, early in pack two is when you want to sort of have that point of no return pick where you decide this is what I'm doing. Do you feel like you have that much time or do you need to make that decision earlier? Well, so I think when you take Pelucranos Reborn, you're either saying I'm definitely playing Pelucranos Reborn because uh-huh. you're giving up a lot by giving up Collective Nightmare here. It's a super uh-huh. efficient removal spell. And then I'm probably only barely splashing Invasion of Tolvada, like in either a green-white or a green-black deck. Or you've got you've to abandon ship on the Plucranos to get back on a... Like, there's just a lot of tension with those two picks because of what the battle asks of you and what Plucranos asks of you. So I think you're probably committing to being base green moving forward or just abandoning ship on the Plucranos right away. I think you're gonna have to make some harder choices earlier about like what strategy or style of deck you're trying to draft. And this is such a stark example of that because like a lot of times you could like take this after taking the black white battle and be like, well, there's a world (laughs) where they both end up in the same deck. I think they're just like such, if we're really thinking about battles being in streamlined two color decks, that's where they're best in. I think they're in such different decks at the end of your draft that the longer you take in hashtag delaying that decision, the more scattered your draft is going to be. Well, and it's a question of power too, right? Like in a normal draft environment, if you could put, two cards as good as Plucranos and Invasion in your deck, your deck's going to be significantly better on average than your opponents. But I don't think that the power level is a normal draft. So like, if you think about it more like cube, everyone's going to have good cards. And then you have a clunkier mana base and a clunkier deck than everyone that has good cards as well. So like, there's less of a payoff for trying to jam Plucranos and Invasion in your deck than there would be in a normal draft format. I think that that is more the yeah. point, I think. Then then that you're going to have like that, that you can't stay open or things like that. It's just how much of a reward are you really getting for jamming both of these cards in your deck when everybody gets to play with powerful cards? Yeah, that checks out for sure. So yeah, I am jazzed to podcast about this format. I think it's going to be super sweet and super deep. I'm very, very excited. You better believe I will be in the queues bright and early, 8 a.m. Jonah, you better get ready, buddy. We're, we're drafting <laughs> on Tuesday. <laughs> All right. Great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you so much. 
to Cool Stuff Inc. for sponsoring this podcast. We're very excited to be partnering with them. If you're heading over there for any and all purchases, whether it be magic related, other TCG related, if you just want to check out some content and send some love there and our way, please use the code LOL at checkout, not only to send some love our way, let them know that you're interested in our partnership, but also to get 5% off your order. You can check us out streaming. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware when I can. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. The Lords of Limited YouTube channel is alive and well. Check that out. And all of our content, plus our tier list, plus our merch, plus everything else is on our website at lordsoflimited.com. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. quite as loquacious as you what do you mean i just mean like if i'm driving the episode <laughs> you're doing great okay. i just didn't i was like i was trying to i was like listening to you and trying to lo- read your bullets and i was like did he just summarize everything or no i'm not just really looking at my in. points i'm just trying to talk great great